here today. I'm going to catch my breath over the next couple of minutes. We're running a mile with one leg. Uh, if you have your Bibles, um, open up to Numbers. We're going to be going through uh, quite a bit like we have been in the past. Um, how many of you are keeping up with your reading? All right. How many of you at least read Numbers this week, 1 through 16? So all the people that just said that they were keeping up are lying. Hold your hands. <laughs> all right. Make sure you guys are doing this. Um, it's going to be a long time before we hit the Pentateuch again. Um, and it's going to be even a longer time before we go through, like, Genesis, chapter by chapter. <laughs> um, at least I assume so. Right? Okay. We have Romans first, so it'll be a little while. Um, unless you're doing personal reading, this is going to be one of the only times that you really have an opportunity like this to kind of just dive in to the Torah. And uh, I want to make sure you guys get that opportunity. Um, there's so much of value in the Pentateuch, as we've already seen. Um, there's so much in there that um, is referred to by the rest of Scripture so much that if you're not catching it now, you're going to miss so much richness of Scripture um, as Paul, as Peter, as James, as Jude refer back, even Jesus refers back to the law uh, in the New Testament and are using examples and things that should be known because they are known amongst the Jews as examples and, and we're going to miss the richness of that uh, if we're not taking the opportunity that we have now to be reading that. So with that, we are going to continue in our Pentateuch series. I feel really hot like vocally right now. The echoing back through. Can you pull me down a bit? Um, we're going to continue our study in the Pentateuch. We are wrapping this sucker up. We have four more weeks left. Uh, this, unless he starts me again next week, is my last week uh, in this series. But we'll be beginning numbers, the first half of that. And as we come in our study through the Pentateuch to the culmination of human discontent, we find numbers being the pinnacle, at least in our study so far, of the discontent of humanity. It may not necessarily be the fullest extent of evil that we've seen so far in the Pentateuch, but it is certainly the pinnacle of discontent that we've experienced. Now, we've been through the flood. Remember that? Um, that was a great time of evil, right? Uh, God said that he wishes he had never made humanity because it was so evil. But here we find a different people, people that are supposed to have been chosen and God's people that we've been following since the beginning who just aren't happy with the way that things are. And I think as we go through today, it should astound you um, the audacity that the Israelites have as we journey through numbers. We're only doing the first 16 chapters today, um, but just in an effort to catch you up, if you've been in nursery or missed a podcast or not been here all six weeks so far, just to catch you up, here we go. As you may remember, Genesis describes the creation and fall. If we look at the macro story of the Bible, we're looking at creation, fall, redemption, consummation, right? Gen Genesis covers the first two of those, right? We have creation and then fall happen all in the first couple chapters. So it describes creation and the fall as well as God's promises and blessings to Abraham and his descendants. We've, we've seen the Abrahamic covenant. We see how that plays a role in the ongoing development of God's people coming through Abraham. 
Genesis would contain everything that the Bible has to say about human history until the birth of Moses. So if you're looking at a timeline and you're trying to say, all right, what have we covered? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. What have we covered? All of human history that we're concerned with, that the Bible has any record of, at least for us, goes from Genesis up until the birth of Moses. Exodus picks up with the birth of Moses. And then the first 80 years of his life, we see that happen very quickly in chapters 1 and 2. But beginning with Exodus chapter 3 and then proceeding all the way through Leviticus, it's the past two weeks that we've done, and then much of Numbers that we're going to be in today, the narrative slows way down. And it only covers a span of about one year. So we've been flying quickly through human history, all the way through Genesis, all the way up to Exodus. And even then, it was a large chunk of time of Moses' life. Eighty years passes in two chapters. But then it slows way down. And so from Exodus 3 until about where we're going to end today in Numbers, only a year passes. We've slowed down a lot. So in the middle of Numbers, we're going to see a 40-year period of wandering. that begins for the Israelites, followed by another one-year section that closes out Numbers and fills all of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is basically just Moses' last sermon. It's a second telling of the law. It's something that we'll get to shortly. But it's in the book of Numbers that the discontentedness of God's chosen people reaches its highest point, even amid God's incredibly gracious blessing upon them. So just some background on the book as we did with Leviticus and Exodus and Genesis. Numbers has 36 chapters. It's broken up typically by most commentators by geography. This book is weird, okay? Uh, It covers so many different genres. There are about five to six different genres covered in Numbers alone. It's much different than Leviticus was. It was primarily law, with just a couple chapters of narrative. Uh, Exodus, narrative, right? Just lots of story, lots of recounting what happened. Genesis, tons of narrative, historical narrative. What's happening? What's going on? And when we get to numbers, it's like six different things. We have law, we have narrative, we have poetry, we have all, all these different things. So in most books where it's you know, advisable to break it up by genre, here we're kind of like, it goes everywhere. So typically we switch to region and numbers. In the first ten chapters, we find the Israelites at Mount Sinai. So they're still at the foot of the mountain. Just as we found them in Exodus, just as they've been in Leviticus, they're still at Mount Sinai for the first 10 chapters. In chapters 11 through 16, we find them in Kadesh. And this is their 40-year wandering period. And that's what we're going to cover today. And the next week, I'm leaving Matt with like 20 chapters. Um, 17 through 36, they will be in Moab. Moab is across from the Promised Land. And so this across from the Promised Land... Moses will give his sermon in Deuteronomy, and then in Joshua, it gets really bloody (laughs) as the Israelites conquer the Promised Land. So the key idea that you would find in Numbers is wandering. Isn't that sad? Having just been redeemed in Exodus and then um, taught how to worship in Leviticus, we find that the key idea in Numbers is just wandering. The nation is tested, which... Seems appropriate, having been redeemed and set apart in Exodus and then taught how to be God's people in Leviticus, there's a test. Much like school, right? You're an eighth grader. You go to school. You get taught, and then there's a test, right? But if we're going to look at kind of what's the overarching principles that we can pull from the first five books of the Bible, we need to look at God. And what is God's character? 
not fun for today. God's justice. God is just. We've already seen him be powerful and sovereign in Genesis. We've seen him be merciful in Exodus as he frees his people. We see him as holy when we see the ramifications for sin in Leviticus and how seriously worship of God must be considered when you have a holy God. But now, with the Israelites should have already knowing these things, they're going to experience God's justice. And God's role, what does he do? Who is he? We see him as sustainer. He's already delivered and he's sanctified, set apart. But now he's going to sustain his people, even amidst his justice. And so finally, just to give you a little bit of context about who we're dealing with, if you read uh, Numbers in the first couple chapters, you would see the sheer amount of people that we're dealing with. Numbers, of course, gets its name from the first couple of chapters. We see number after number after number after number. Uh, Jess was talking to me yesterday about how she memorized an entire chapter just by memorizing the first five verses. Because uh, all you have to do is repeat the same thing and change the tribe. Repeat the same thing, change the tribe. Repeat the same thing, change the tribe. Um, there's a lot of repetition. There's a lot of numbers. There's a lot of specific details in numbers. And so it gets its name from the census. But just to kind of give you an idea of where we're at, we're getting ready to head out from Mount Sinai into the desert. And the census asks for the amount of fighting men that are available. So men that are 18 or older that are able to fight. And the total number is a little bit more than 600,000 fighting men. That's a large army. That's a large army in any, any point of history. 600,000 fighting men is a lot. Now what does that mean? That means national Israel is 2.5 million people or more. That's a lot of people that the desert's supposed to sustain. Now, <laughs> movies and TV would have us believe that in the desert, um, you can walk for like two hours, and then, you know, you've got your shirt wrapped around your head, somehow you're down just to your underwear, and there's no water, but everywhere you see, you see water, but then you eat sand, right, after two hours, right? That's how it goes. How in the world did two and a half million people survive in a desert for a very very long time. That's what we're dealing with with numbers. That's why God's a sustainer. That's why this is a big deal. So let's, let's begin. First thing I want you to see today is that God prepares his people. God prepares his people. God is the main character of numbers as much as he is the entire Bible. So we find the people at Mount Sinai for chapters 1 through 10 again. And keep in mind that they and we have been there since Exodus 19. So God prepares his people. How does God prepare his people? Well, as much as I would like to just jump into a text and go through that as we would normally like to do, we can't. We have a lot to cover. And so we see some general themes as we begin to outline and break down the text. He teaches them first about purity. If God is preparing his people, he teaches them about purity. In, verse, in chapters 4 and 5, and then in the first half of chapter 6, we see several different things covered. An entire chapter is given to marriage. Purity in marriage. Even so much so that if a husband suspects and becomes jealous of the fact that his wife might be cheating on him and having an adulterous relationship... He and her can go to the tabernacle, and a test of sorts is applied. That if she is guilty, God will reveal her guilt, and if she is not, God will vindicate her. All of this just to simply make sure that there is purity 
in marriage. If she is guilty, she will be killed. If she is not, then their relationship is pure, and they can go on in a very healthy relationship. But even in a suspicion of adultery, there's a case on how do we handle that? How does God care about purity? We see in chapter 5, rules about the camp. How should the camp be both set up? How should it be ordered? How should it be clean? God, as we saw from the past two weeks, is concerned about the cleanliness of the camp. Remember our circle last week as we dealt with clean and unclean? And then we had inside of clean the holy things and how unclean things can never touch holy things. God's concerned about everything. If there's anything that the laws of Leviticus show us, it's that God is concerned about absolutely everything. And we see that in marriage and in camp. But something that's interesting and a little bit different is in chapter 6 when we see the Nazarite vows. Are you guys familiar with the story of Samson? The really strong guy who got his hair cut by Delilah on the radio, right? Okay. I just want to make sure you're awake. Um, yeah, that's Samson. He was a Nazarite. That the reason that he lost his power, his strength, is because he had his haircut, which if you read in Numbers, breaks the Nazarite vow. In fact, he did two other things that break the Nazarite vow, but God still sustained him. So a Nazarite vow, what the point of that is, it's, it's not a Levite. Levites are already set apart, right? Those are the priests. A Nazarite is, is somebody from any other tribe who wants to set themselves apart for a time. It's not a, year, it's not a lifelong thing. It's a period of like six months, a year, however long they decide. They take a vow that they will not eat grapes or anything of the vine. They will not touch anything dead, and they will not bring a razor to their head. So, correct. Um, <laughs> a Nazarite is, is someone who wants to set themselves apart and show, be a visible representation of what it means to be set apart. So it's kind of a visual reminder for the Israelites to see someone who is actively going a little above and beyond to be set apart. So he teaches them about purity. The second thing that we see him do as he prepares his people is he gives them the priests. We saw a lot about the ordination of the priests. We saw a lot about their role back in Leviticus. Leviticus means for the priests. But we see God actually giving them to his people in Numbers. And in chapter 1 is the census, and chapter 2 is the structure. But in chapters 3 and 4, you see this language of giving the Levites. Understand that the Levites are gods. God redeems them. If you've been reading, it talks about how he takes the Levites for his own instead of taking the firstborn of the entire nation. Instead of taking the firstborn of the entire nation for his own, which he rightly deserves, he instead takes the whole tribe of the Levites. But then he reciprocates in giving them back. By giving them to lead the Israelites, he prepares them. How does he prepare the Levites? Well, we saw, again, some of that a book ago. But there are more roles and responsibilities that he gives. As we know that they're camps, and they're not just going to stay there, right? The base of Mount Sinai is not the promised land. It's not flowing with milk and honey. It's flowing with sand and dirt. they got to go there. So who's going to move this giant tabernacle? He just instituted all of these sacrifices, all of these cleansing rules, all of these things that have to happen at the tabernacle. Are they just going to leave it? No, the, the Levites are responsible for carrying the entire tabernacle. You see such care and precision in God's word that he talks about every utensil that they have to clean. Who's responsible for what? They move the tabernacle, they take care of the utensils, the bowls, the altars, the scepters, all these things. And it always is at the center of the camp. The whole tribe of Israel 
centers on the tabernacle. But I'd say most significantly, the way that God prepares his people is by giving them his presence. By giving them his presence. You remember when Moses said that he would rather die than go on without the presence of God when we were in Exodus? That's how important God's presence is. God's presence is what, as we saw last week, is what fundamentally sets apart the Israelites from any other nation. And so for God's presence to be upon an entire people is massive. We see the well-known Aaronic blessing in chapter 6, verse 22 through 27. I encourage you to, to memorize this. It's very easy. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. And so they will put my name on the Israelites and I will bless them. The name on someone is associated with giving of themselves. He resides now among his people. We see his presence remembered in the first Passover in the desert. Remember in Exodus they were told that they needed to keep doing the Passover? It would be pretty difficult in the desert, right? They have a lamb that you have to slaughter. They have to have that same meal, all that thing. And God provides everything necessary for it in chapter 9, the first half. So we see his presence in the first remembrance of the Passover. We see his presence in the cloud and in the fire that is residing at the tabernacle, cloud by day and fire by night. A cloud by day and a fire by night that will also lead the people as they travel. We see a daily reminder of God's presence in the trumpets in chapter 10, the first half. It reminds me of when you go out at 5 o'clock and you can hear the bass doing their, I don't know, is that revelry? I'm sorry to put you on the spot. I don't want to get you in trouble. <laughs> huh? What's that? Retreat. Retreat? I'll retreat home. That works for me. I like it now. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah, so it reminds me that it's always there because you hear it and you're like, oh, yeah, I live next to the base. Oh, yeah, I live next to the base. We get nuked. I'm screwed. Um, that's what happens, right? It's a constant reminder that it's there. I even always hear it. And then the last thing, again, is that we see as they move out, God leads and determines the pace. It's not just, all right, Moses, you guys can go. It's that way. God, again, in his presence of the cloud and then the fire, is leading his people. He determines the pace. Sometimes they travel for a weeks at a time. Sometimes they don't travel for a month. Scripture says that depending on when God would come and when he would go, we would stop and we would start. We follow him in his pace. So I think there's a great deal of application. And when we look at just, you know, we've already covered 10 chapters of Numbers. That was quick, wasn't it? God's preparing his people. We see it by giving the priests, by teaching them about purity, and by being with them. And so the question for us today is, how has God prepared you? How has God prepared you? I think if you can answer the how, that will help you determine a great deal of the why. Why or what has God prepared you for? How has God prepared you? How has God prepared us at renovation? How has God prepared your individual family, our nation? What's cool about seeing the preparation of God is that he's concerned about everything. He's powerful enough to give what's necessary. And he's sovereign over it all. God's preparing you for something. He's preparing us for something. If you're a Christian and you're here today, You've been prepared for God most crucially because you heard the gospel. The gospel that he died on the cross for your sins and took on himself the wrath of God that you deserved 
And it's not just that you heard it, but you believed. You believed the truth of the gospel. You repented of your sins, and you followed him. That's, that's enormous preparation from God. If you are a Christian, think about this. Look back, and how do you see that God was preparing you even for conversion? Not just the fact that you heard the gospel and you believed. Why did you believe? How was God moving in your life to prepare you even for conversion? Understand that when we become believers, God has made us his own. We, like the Israelites, are his people. God has made us his own. Do you see what God has already done in your heart to prepare you for himself? And it's not just that he can have you. It's so that you can know him. The same thing that's happening with the Israelites. He's teaching them how to worship him. He's teaching them who he is. He's teaching them how to know him and be in relationship with him. We saw last week exactly what that means, particularly as we're dealing with unintentional sins. We need to know what we've done to offend God. If he is holy and there will be a judgment day and we're going to be held accountable for our sins, we need to know what we've done wrong. We have to know the word. We have to know who he is. And even still, as we're preparing for him and we become his own, we need to know him. We need to learn more about him and his will for our lives. We, need to, we have his spirit. And I, I like the way that Mark Dever says it. He says, rather, his spirit has us. I, I, I know myself, when I read that, I'm like, yeah, I've always thought about me having the spirit. Now, I have the power. Um, right? Acts 1a, you will have power. And it's not unbiblical. Maybe a little overstressed that I have the power, like I'm He-Man. Wrong idea. The Spirit has us. We don't come into possession of God. God comes into possession of us. We become God's. We become His children. We become these things, but they're all His power. It's all His ownership. We see this even at the beginning of this year as we did our uh, money management class. Everything belongs to God. I don't have this paycheck. I have His paycheck. Hey, trust me, these type things. The Spirit has us. That's why Christmas is is so special. It's not just that we have a great God, but we have Emmanuel, God with us. And believer, you have God in you. So as we kind of wrap up this preparation period, I want you to take some time and look at how richly God has blessed you. Just think about it. How richly has God blessed you? God has done amazing and great things for his people. How has he blessed you with your spouse, with your kids, with your extended family, with your home, with your food, your job, your vehicles, air conditioning? How has he blessed you? Now think about this, people of God. How has God richly blessed us at renovation? Do not stop marveling at the miracle that is this body of people. People from my former life, I don't know what to call it, um, (laughs) north of here, um, always used to ask, at least as we were beginning renovation, how's it going? And uh, my standard response was, I can't explain what God's doing, but he's doing it. I never wanted to take credit for anything. I knew that as soon as I take credit, it will be exposed of how bad I am at what I'm doing. Uh, so that is a good motivator. But 
It's an understanding that God is the one who's in control. He's the one that's blessing. All good things come from the Father of lights above. What good father doesn't give to his children good things? We see that in James. God has richly blessed this church with its musicians, with its pastors, with its leaders, with its home gathering leaders, with its sound people, with its setup crew, with its location, with its storage, with its home gatherings, with the ability for people who we've never met to be able to come into our home gatherings and say that this is the most welcome that they've felt in years. That's the work of God. God has richly blessed us. And so as you kind of step back and look at, really survey what blessings you have in your life, when you survey that, do you see God's preparing, providing, and provident hand in all of this? You see his preparation of his people? And so God prepares his people. How has God prepared you? But, <laughs> numbers. The second thing we see is that the people do not trust God. The people do not trust God. We find them, they have moved out from Mount Sinai, and they're in Kadesh, chapters 11 through 16. The people do not trust God. How do we know in Numbers that the people don't trust God? Well, if you read anything from 11 to uh, 16, you'll see, particularly in 11 and 12, lots and lots of complaining. Lots and lots of complaining. I mean, these are the type of people that would complain about the temperature of water that's gushing out of a rock in the desert. They're complaining about the temperature of the water. These are the type of the people that might walk across the split sea being chased by the Egyptians, and if it were not for God's provident hand in that, complain about the mud on their shoes. I mean, th that's the type of people that we see in Israel. They complain about their hardships. Let's get this. They complain about their hardships. Let's, they're no longer slaves. They're not hungry. They're no longer being whipped as they work. And they're not building pyramids in Egypt where it's really hot. They're free. They're in a desert, understandable, but with ample food and water. So much so that if they kept more than they needed, God would have it spoil to show them that they have all that they need when God gives it. And they're on a direct route to the promised land. But they had hardships. And the only thing I could think of when I was looking at that is hashtag first world problems. If you get on your phone and you go to Instagram, Twitter, if you Google search hashtag first world problems, it will make you very, very, very sad. I, I, I'm not going to try to guilt us into saying, well, we should live like the Haitians because they're God's people and they're making it do, so we should not complain about it. We are privileged and blessed to live in this country. We are privileged and blessed to live in a place that we're allowed to vote, that we're allowed to go about freely, that I can stand on the street and read scripture out loud and not get shot, put in prison, or whatever. I may get made fun of. Well, no, first world problems, right? There's a book that came out not long ago um, about how to not go, at church, go to church and be a Christian. 
And as you read a review for that book and then you look at other people's accounts of church that's difficult, you find people that can't go to church because the room is not air conditioned. Um, I think we've experienced some days like that before. In fact, only like two of these things work right now. Uh, the first building that Matt met in, right, you guys didn't have air conditioning uh, in connection. Yeah. So, I mean, it's not like it's unheard of, but really? No air conditioning means we can't go to church. It's too early. Can't go to church. It takes up too much of my weekend. Can't go to church. What, what kind of complaining are we doing? What kind of things are we looking for? Why are we here? What does it mean to be God's people? We talked about what is your identity two weeks ago. Is your identity air-conditioned individual? No, then why does that determine the course of your actions? Yeah, we went to Haiti, and there's lots of pictures of me and a much wetter version than this. That's what they do. Now, what's crazy is we can sit here and be like, well, we have it so much better. Yeah, we shouldn't complain. I mean, they have it so much worse. Even there, they have third world problems. The men, when the water comes in from the truck, the men sit there on their butts and don't do anything. The women go out there with five-gallon buckets or bigger, and they get filled up with water, and then they're the ones that carry it back to their house. Sin abounds in every world. On their heads. Yeah, that was crazy. Um, <laughs> that's impressive. I would go there just to watch that. But um, no, it, it, it abounds everywhere. We can find something to complain about no matter how much we have or no matter how much we don't have. The key is, is what are we looking for? Israel was complaining about their hardships. They don't just complain about that. They complain about their food. They don't have to work for their food. None. They don't even have to drive to McDonald's. It just shows up, and they pick it up off the ground. And they're complaining about their food. If only we had meat to eat. We used to have spices and grapes and all these other things. But God has given us this nutrient-rich, perfect thing that will sustain us and fill us up. And we don't have to work for it at all. And it just shows up. But man, I wish we were back in Egypt. I wish I was being whipped. I wish I was working 12-hour days in the hot sun building bricks. Come on. And then even, even worse, we have then people start complaining about leadership, not just their circumstances. But Miriam and Aaron, Moses' brother and sister, complain. In chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, it says, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married. For he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Verse 3 says, Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. What an amazing thing, to be known as the most humble man in all the earth by God. That's, that's, just, that's just a cool piece. So we know from that verse that Moses is not lording his authority over the people. And we've seen it previously that Moses has even stuck his own neck out for all of the people and prayed that God would, would have mercy on the people. So we know that he's not doing anything wrong. And verse 4 says, And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out, and the Lord came down on a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forward. How terrifying is this? 
You know that time when you're fighting with your sibling and your mom was like, you two, here, now, right? That's kind of what's going on. And God comes down in a cloud, <laughs> right? And he says, you two, come here. That's where we're at. And they came forward, and he said, hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly, and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. And when the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous, like snow. And Aaron turned toward Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. And Aaron said to Moses, O my Lord, do not punish us, because we have done foolishly and have sinned. Let her not be as one dead, whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes out of his mother's womb. And Moses cried to the Lord. Listen to this. Oh God, please heal her, please. But the Lord said to Moses, If her father had but spit in her face, should she not be shamed seven days? Let her be shut outside the camp seven days, and after that she may be brought in again. And so Miriam was shut outside the camp seven days, and the people did not set out on the march till Miriam was brought in again. After that, the people set out from Hazaroth and camped in the wilderness of Paran. This is a hard passage to preach um, because it seems self-serving, but I can begin with this. I'm not the most humble man on the face of the planet. We'll begin with that. Um, knowing that, I want to be careful how I talk about this. Let's understand first that complaining against authority is complaining against God. It doesn't necessarily matter that Moses is without fault. Because we don't even really see that in God's response to Miriam and to Aaron. We see that he does declare that he is meek. But when we see what God is concerned about, he is concerned about them speaking against himself. And so to speak against the authority that God has declared in a complaining way, in a usurping way, and, and whatever, is to decry against God's authority. Well, Matt and I are no strangers to having people come after us. Um, it's happened in this ministry. It happened in our former ministries. God always vindicates his leaders. Now, I can't say that there's never been any fault of my own in there. I can't say any of that. I will say this. I learn through those. I grow. I learn some faults and weaknesses in my own leadership that I, I rectify. I repent of. I, I change. I try to grow in. But at the same time, God has prepared me and Matt for these roles as, as elders. Now, I'm not perfect. I don't make the right decision every time. But I, you're not held accountable for that. I am. But when people have come against, at least me in the past, and I know Matt as well. I'm not going to share any stories. Um, God vindicates his leaders. I think we've seen that even in recent days. And it certainly happens elsewhere. I don't want to go into any more detail on that. Understand that when you and I go against God's authority that he has put into place, we're rebelling against God's authority. 
We see that again later in chapter 16. We read through this entire chapter uh, probably a year ago or so. I remember reading this um, as an example. And we're only going to read just the last bit of it. Um, in chapter 16, we're skipping ahead a little bit. They're already in rebellion, full-on rebellion. All right, And we have a couple characters who are, again, going against Moses. And now, this is interesting, Aaron as well. So Aaron gets a little taste of his own medicine that he just tried to do against Moses. So if you have your Bible, flip with me to chapter 16 real quick. We're just going to read a couple verses and begin in verse 41. There's been rebellion going on already. It's been brought before Moses. It's been brought before God. And God's getting ready to basically pronounce his judgment. All right. So this is, again, the Israelites in rebellion against their leadership. Starting in verse 41 of chapter 16. But on the next day, all the congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and against Aaron. How about that? Saying, you have killed the people of the Lord. And when the congregation had assembled against Moses and against Aaron, they turned toward the tent of meeting. So this is your like classic movie, pitchfork lanterns. They're marching down the street, somehow all in mass. It's getting ready to go down. And behold, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. So they're marching like in an army towards the tent of meeting because they have beef to settle with Moses. And God descends immediately and shows up. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Get away from the midst of this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces. And Moses said to Aaron, Take your censer and put fire on it from the altar and lay incense on it, and carry it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them. For wrath has gone out from the Lord. The plague has begun. They're getting ready to come and kill Moses. And he tells Aaron to run quickly and make atonement for the people. What a leader. Verse 47, So Aaron took it as Moses said and ran into the midst of the assembly. And behold, the plague had already begun among the people. And he put the incense on and made atonement for the people. And he stood between the dead and the living and the plague was stopped. Now those who died in the plague were 14,700 besides those who died in the affair of Korah. That was earlier in the chapter. And Aaron returned to Moses at the entrance of the tent of meeting when the plague was stopped. God meets all of their challenges. Whether it be complaining about the conditions, whether it be complaining about their food, he provides quail. Man is not enough, here's meat. You don't have to work for it either, it'll fall out of the sky. And God certainly answers the complaints about their authority and their leaders. God's man is God's man. Follow or get out of the way. So, what do you complain about? How do you show evidence of not trusting God? I think more importantly, think about this question. What does your complaining communicate to God about his provision for you? When you complain about circumstances, when you complain about what's going on in your life, what does that communicate to God, who's always listening, as we've seen, the people talk and he responds. They're talking in the camp and he responds. He informs Moses of what's going down. God's always listening. And so he hears us when we complain. What does that say about his provision for you? What does it say about your belief in his wisdom and goodness? Now, these are questions I have to ask myself right now. I don't, don't have an office. I've been living with my parents for a year waiting on this house. We keep thinking that we're going to get it, and then we're not, and then we think we're going to get it, and then we're not. 
it's back and forth. I'm getting ready to have a baby and not have a home. I mean, there's a lot that you could complain about. But how do you get through this time? God's nothing but good to me. I have a home I can live in. I have another baby coming. I have a wife who makes a ton of money. <laughs> I, I'm living the good life. It's not everything that I would say that I want, but God has been nothing but good to me. And what's more, I know this. God has always had perfect timing. I always get to the other side, and I say, man, God was three days later than what I would have wanted, but his timing was perfect. I was talking to Jess the other day. What happens when we get to the other side of this phase of our life? What happens when we get to the other side? We have a second daughter. We have a home that we can call our own. We have a job for her that's in Dayton. We get back there, we get there and we look back and we're like, well, God's timing was perfect. Why didn't we trust him? We need to do that now. We need to be able to see that now. If you've been reading, the, if you've been reading you'll see repeatedly God telling them to make an altar. Why? It's not just an opportunity to worship him and praise him. Certainly we should do that when God gives us great blessings. It's so that they can look back and they can remember. Hey, you remember when we crossed the Red Sea? There's an altar there. It's a memorial of what God did. He killed all the Egyptians. We walked across the lake bed and it was dry. And people forget. What altars do you have in your life where you can look back and you can see, yes, God did this, God did this. So I know he's going to do this. I'm not going to live with my parents for the next 40 years. It's not going to happen. I'm going to have a home. Someday they're going to sign the contract and we'll be fine. Right? Can you trust God? What are you complaining about right now? Do you trust his wisdom? Do you believe he's good? Because the, the thing that we need to remind ourselves of now, too, is when we are on the other side of that, we have the baby, the job, the house. Everything is good, right? What's next? What if it's harder? What if it takes more faith? What if it takes more suffering and pain? What if, God forbid, our daughter's sick? What happens when it gets worse? What do you have to look back to? Is God still good? Do you still believe his wisdom? Do you still believe that it's good for you? I think the best question that we could ask to help identify where we're at is, when's the last time that you felt genuinely satisfied? When's the last time that you felt genuinely satisfied? Everything was just right. Has it ever happened for you? Or are you always looking for something else? Is vacation actually vacation? Or do you try to fill up your rest time with all these things that should help you rest, but neglect the word of God and find yourself more empty at the end of vacation than you were at the beginning? The tendency for me when I go on vacation to try to knock out all these other books. I was reading uh, a little convicted, uh, a lot of convicted, um, a book on Isaac Watts. And uh, some of you may be familiar with who he is. He wrote like most of our hymns, like almost all of them, all the good ones at least. Um, he's a phenomenal, phenomenal writer. And his dad wrote him a letter saying, because he always wanted books. As soon as I got money, book. Dad, buy me a book. Book, please buy me a book. So I'm like, okay, that's me. Um, 
I don't really ask her. I just go, Amazon, Amazon, give me a book. Um, so that's what we do. Um, but he, he writes a letter to his son and says, I'm, enjoy, I'm glad you enjoy this. Do not neglect the word of God. Do not neglect the word of God. And I'm like, I need to close this book and open my Bible back up. Um, are we satisfied with him or is it always something else? Are you complaining? Are you always looking forward? Are you looking back, wishing it was like Egypt? Are you looking forward to what could be, or can you enjoy now because God's preparing you for something? They don't trust God because they complain, and they don't trust God, and they show it by rebelling. In chapter 13, 1 through 14, we have all the hope. They've been traveling. God's been providing. He's prepared them. He's taught them. He's brought them out of Egypt. He's declared great promises for him in the Abrahamic covenant and the Aaronic blessing. We see all of this great stuff. It's Christmas Eve. Everything's about to happen, right? You're about to get presents. You're going to have this enormous meal. You're going to be at the promised land. Spies have gone. They've returned. They have news. Listen to this hope. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here, look at its fruit. Men carrying the fruit of the land on poles because it was huge. But, whenever you respond to God's promises with but, you're heading in a bad direction. Here is its fruit. But, the people who live there are powerful. And the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev. The Hittites, and Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country. Basically anybody that the rock has been on in movies. And the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. But then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land. For we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land that they had explored. When you can't take them on directly, just gossip. You know, just say a little bit here, a concern that you have there. But certainly acknowledge all the good things, you know, all the right things, but then just raise those couple questions that you have. This is what the leaders are doing. Can you imagine a, a clearer picture of the importance of leadership? Because at the beginning of chapter 13, Moses sends the leaders, like the, basically the person just under the head of the tribe, to go and be spies. He sends the leaders of the leaders to go. And where they should put courage in the hearts of the people, they instead put fear. And when they should lead them to trust God and to trust his leadership, they lead them instead to rebel. In chapter 14, 1 through 4, that night all the people of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. They're across from the promised land and they're weeping. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this desert. Why is the Lord going to bring us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and our children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? 
And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. But Joshua and Caleb plead with them. In verse 9, they say, do not rebel against the Lord. And do not be afraid of the people of the land. But they are so given over to their rebellion that they begin planning to stone them. Once people set their hearts on rejecting God's truth, they will not even tolerate hearing it. It is profoundly true that when people set their hearts against the truth of God's word, they won't even tolerate hearing it. They will come up with every excuse imaginable, every compromise imaginable, every rationalization possible in order to reject and not even hear the truth of God's word. So you have Israel, Moses, Joshua, and Caleb. How should churches strive to live purely unto the Lord together? What's to keep renovation from becoming the body, the pastors, and maybe the top leaders? What keeps them all pure together? What keeps the body from wanting to stone me? From not listening to anything that I have to say, even when it comes directly from the Word of God? How does the church strive to live purely unto the Lord together? How should churches respond when members willfully and unrepentantly choose lifestyles characterized by impurity. Now, hear those two fundamental words, willfully and unrepentantly. So God prepares the people. People complain. They rebel. And so how does God act? How should he act? What should he do? From what we've read so far, don't, don't think about the New Testament, don't think about Job, don't think about Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, none of that. Just as we've seen God revealed so far, how should he respond? Appropriately, God punishes the people. God punishes the people. This is uh, covered in chapter 14, verse 10, uh, through all of 16. So in response to this outright open rebellion, Joshua and Caleb come to them and say, do not rebel against the Lord. We can do this. They say, no, we can't, and we're going to kill you. And they begin to gather stones and are ready to kill them. And in response, God punishes the people. He picks right up. Then the glory of the Lord appeared. As soon as it's out of their mouth, God shows up. Then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. This is chapter 14, verse 10. The Lord said to Moses, How long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me? In spite of all the miraculous signs I've performed among them, I will strike them down with a plague and destroy them, but I will make you into a nation greater and stronger than they. 
Even, even in God's justice, he remembers his covenant. He's still going to have a chosen people. He's still going to have a people unto himself. They're still going to fulfill what he said to Abraham. You just got to start all over with Moses. <laughs> this rebellion that the Israelites are doing is not against Moses. It's not against Joshua and Caleb. It's against God himself. How long will they treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me despite all I've done and shown them? And as before, Moses intercedes again for the guilty people, even when they grumble against him. That's hard. That's hard. It's hard to be able to do that when they're complaining against your leadership, when they're complaining against your family, when they're calling members of your spouse names. It's hard. God does forgive them. And even so, they receive the due consequence for their sins. And those consequences are mortal. Understand that their actions deserve for, at that moment, for him to wipe them out of existence for all eternity. It's just over. That's what they deserve. But he forgives them. Nonetheless, there are consequences due our sin. The consequences are mortal. We see that their death sentence is carried out over the next three chapters. We read some of that. Chapter 16, that rebellion that we read about is, is part of God's judgment. The plague that comes upon the people. We see in chapter 14, God responds this way. Nevertheless, as surely as I live, and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of the men who saw my glory and the miraculous signs I performed in Egypt and in the desert but rather disobeyed me and tested me ten times. Not one of them will ever see the land that I promised on oath to their forefathers. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. This 40-year wandering that we hear about in Sunday school is not some, like, cosmic timeout. It's not God saying, yeah, you really shouldn't have done that. Why don't you guys wander, pay the price? You just don't get to go to the amusement park for another 40 years. That's not what's going on. This is a death sentence on an entire generation. The desert goes from being a bypath to the promised land to being a cemetery. We can't forget that Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. I hope I made it clear the past two weeks in Leviticus. Sin equals death. So what does this mean for us? Well, we're not waiting necessarily to go to a promised land. Some of us may have our own promised land that we're waiting on. We may have different things that we're hoping for in the future, things that we want to get away from in the past. What can we do with numbers, at least this first half? I think what would be really valuable is to notice the connection between dissatisfaction and sin. So when I asked you, think back to a time that you were truly satisfied. How, 
easy was it for your sin, your heart to fall into sin in those times? When you're satisfied, Christian, it should be times when you're satisfied in who God is. It's pretty hard to fall into sin then, right? But think about when you're dissatisfied. You're out of your element. Things just aren't going your way. How easy is it to fall into sin then? You know, the mission trips are like the great equalizer, right? We go to Haiti, when I went with some of my friends before to Costa Rica, when you go even stateside. And you get away with people for a couple of days, you begin to get some of the layers out of the way because maybe the, the shower water is not always hot or you didn't get to sleep as much as you would like and you're uncomfortable and you're dissatisfied and even many minor things. It becomes a lot harder to be relationally honest or maybe you're too honest. <laughs> it becomes a lot harder to keep our hearts from falling into sin. What about in your regular life as you're here? Things aren't going well at work. Do you bring that home and take it out on your spouse? You don't like what the preacher said or what somebody at church said about how you're living your life? You take it out on them? You gossip? You talk bad about people? There's a huge connection between being dissatisfied and, and finding yourself in sin. What does the New Testament have for us? Well, if you look at Paul... Speaking in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. This should, this should kind of reach back to the Lord saying, Why were you not afraid to say the things that you said about Moses? You know I stand behind Moses. You know he's my man. Why are you not afraid to speak ill of him? God is powerful, and he's just. If we learn anything from numbers, we should understand that we should work out our salvation with fear and trembling, because sin deserves death. But understand the great news of the gospel. It is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life. Does your life look like that? Because it won't if you're a complainer. To complain says, I don't have God's best. He doesn't know what he's doing. I should have something else. One of the great tragedies, I think, of social media is that everyone, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm fine for people having an opinions, but what in the world tells us that we should have an opinion on absolutely everything, and even more so, to be so arrogant to think that our opinion on everything should matter? I don't know anything about jewelry. I'm going to say it looks pretty. But not everyone has to believe that it looks pretty. Okay, it could even be fake. <laughs> She'll know. I won't. Um, my opinion doesn't matter when it comes to jewelry. I can have one. Who cares? The fact that people can like it on Facebook makes me feel as if my opinion has value. They agree. I'm a jeweler now because these people 
would clarify that I am. They like what I said. I like to talk about basketball. I don't know anything about basketball. I know it's a stupid sport. It's incredibly subjective. But it's fun to watch. I don't evaluate basketball. I evaluate character. So yes, I can say something about LeBron James. Doesn't mean I'm right. Doesn't mean other people have to listen to me. Certainly doesn't make me no basketball just because I think I can say something. What are you broadcasting? What opinions do you have? Constructive criticism is always the rationalization for complaining. Oh, it's just my opinion. I didn't like that music. It was too loud. That's not what I want to do. I'm not best at that. It's just constructive criticism. We could do it a little bit better. No, I'm just complaining. I'm just grumbling. I'm grumbling. I want to do it my way. That's not what Paul's talking about. See, when we do things without grumbling or disputing, we may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation that wants to be a professional in everything, that wants to say my opinion matters on everything, that wants to say what I think is gospel. We need to hold fast to the word of life. He goes on in 2 Corinthians in chapter 12, verse 10. He says, for the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses. I'm content with insults. I'm content with hardships. I'm content with persecutions. I'm content with calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What do you complain about? How are you like the Israelites? We have to ask ourselves, right? Scripture tells us that everything that happened to the Israelites was an example for us. Are you Joshua and Caleb? Are you Moses? Or are you a grumbling Israelite? Because an entire generation died in the desert. How are you taking steps to defeat discontent? How are you fighting against your own complaining heart? What truths do you cling to? What songs do you sing? Are you content with calamity? Can you look at Katrina and say, thank God? Can you look at insults and say, thank God? Why? Because these things make me weak. But it's when I'm weak, I'm strong. And what are you looking to for content? So complaining equals discontent. What makes you content? What are you complaining for? What are you looking for? What satisfies you fully? One of the questions from Renovate Us I'm going to leave us with today is which phrase most characterizes you? Are you nostalgic about the past? That's okay. The past is awesome. It is what it is. It's good, it's bad, whatever it was for you. But do you want to be there? Not just look back at it, but be there. Are you content in the present? Or are you expectant for the future? All these things can be okay, but why? Why are you expectant for the future? 
Why are you nostalgic about the past? Do you wish you were in Egypt? The first judgment that happens to the Israelites after they have their death sentence pronounced is in the very next chapter. They go, oh, I guess we should have taken the promised land. Let's go. And they go without the Ark of the Covenant. They go without Moses. They go even though God told them not to because they will not possess it. And they are wiped out. Just routed. The time for obedience is not later. In America, we like to think that we can make up for what we screwed up. Right? There's always a second chance. The reason we like that is it's because it's the whole, I'd rather ask forgiveness than ask permission. I want to do what I want, I'll pay the consequences later. It doesn't work that way with God. Sin is sin and sin deserves death. He is gracious in the fact that we're even here. He's gracious in the fact that I am even standing here able to preach this word. We don't get second chances. You don't get to make up for it. You can't. I can't. I cannot make up for my sin. There's not, I cannot spend the rest of my life doing nothing but righteousness. It will not make up for the sin of my life. The only thing that does that is the gospel. I don't later get to go to God's word and be like, oh, I should have done this. Maybe this, if I do it from now on, it'll make up for that one time. A time that I didn't go into the promised land and I doubted God. If, if I go tomorrow and, and I go, you know, sort of swinging and just trust, maybe that'll make up for the fact that I didn't do that yesterday. No, God said no. It's over. It's not over for us yet. We have the opportunity to respond to the gospel, the gospel that Jesus Christ did die on the cross, that he was propitiation for us. He absorbed the wrath due us. This anger that you see coming down on the Israelites, that wrath, Jesus absorbed all of that for us. We respond to the gospel because the promised land's not far away. It's right across the river. And one day, we're getting ready to sing in your city. We will be in his city if we are believers. And until that time, we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, not grumbling or complaining, but being an example to the world that we trust God, that he is wise, that he's sovereign, and that he's provident. Praise God. Let's spend some time singing as we close out today. As we look forward to the day that we will be with him in glory, that we will be with him in paradise, that we will be in his city. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you so much for who you are. God, we thank you for the opportunity to be co-heirs with Christ. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be able to walk with you through this world. As we search your world, as we get to know you in relationship, as we get to worship you as you have prescribed, as we get to do all of these things because of what you are, have done and who you are. God, we know that you have provided everything for us. We know that we can trust you. Father, show us where we tend to lean on ourselves. Show us, Father, where we trust ourselves. Show us where our heart wants to complain. And Father, root out every satisfaction that has not come from you and your Son. 
Lord, we love you and we look forward to seeing you face to face. For all this in Jesus' name. Amen.